Welcome to episode 41 of God's Own Scale podcast. I'm Sean Clark, and during this episode, I am talking with Sean Taylor and Robert Dunlop about the future of Great War Spearhead. As hopefully some of you will have seen, I'm now back fully engaged with the hobby and the podcast and Six Mill in general, in fact. And I've been painting like an absolute demon. My brushes have been on fire, but more of that at the end of the show. I've at last started to make use of the God's Own Scale Facebook group, and it's been lovely to see one or two of you do the same or else offer words of support and encouragement. And I'm going to name check a few of you now, but apologies if I miss you off that list. Richard Willis has been a long-time supporter of the podcast and the Facebook group and elsewhere. He's been giving me appropriate support and some nice words regarding my AWI posts lately. And it's been great also to see Alfred Great posting up pictures of his lovely 2D6 Crete figures. I'm now kicking myself for missing out on that particular Kickstarter, but do look forward to checking them out. Now they appear to be available through retail. And again, links will be in the show notes to the 2D6 webpage. I can't thank past guest Charles Roundtree enough for the work he has done on the God's Own Scale virtual library. He has done what I said I'd do and not done and collected together every book recommendation made during the virtual library segment of each show. And he's all, not only done that, but he's put a link to the episode in which the recommendation was given. And also to Amazon's, for those of you who are interested in picking up a copy of that particular book. It must have been a monumental effort. And I am proud and pleased to hereby announce that Charles is now the first recipient of the God's Own Scale Medal for Services to the Podcast. It's of absolutely no value whatsoever outside of this podcast. But regardless, thank you, Charles, and you are now entitled to add the letters G-O-S-M after your name in any and all official correspondence. Uh, some other shout-outs, uh, in particular to Sven uh, Fokusern, Dice Dad, James and Matt Hunwick, the Wargaming Brothers, uh, Nordic Weasel Gamer, Friends of General Haig, Marshall Luigi, uh, Pycroft himself, Nigel Betts, Keeper Dave, all three lardies, and to be honest, too many others to mention. But nevertheless, you have all helped, encouraged, cajoled, and otherwise contributed to my renewed energy and enthusiasm for this hobby. And I thank you from the heart of my bottom for that. You're all now on my virtual Christmas card list. In uh, some hobby news, unfortunately, the Allenwell Show, or the West Midlands Military Modelling Society Show, has been cancelled uh, for the second year, maybe the third year actually, uh, no, second year in a row, which is a real shame. It's always been one of my favourites to get to. It's only, well, it's less than an hour from where I am. Uh, it's understandable, though, in this chaotic world that we continue to live in. However, as I speak, Vapnartak is still on, which is the York Show. Uh, on the 6th of February, and I'm hoping to get up there to that particular show, in particular to see the original Pony Wars game, which Peter Berry is going to be showing off. That promises to be a wonderful. Uh, I have a veritable bucket load of guests, they're in my bucket right next to me here, lined up for February and on into March and April. 
each one of which I'm looking forward to speaking to. Most of them are new guests of the show, which is especially exciting. I'm going to highlight one in particular now, though, as it's someone I've been aware of for a while, and I think you all should be aware of too. So go and check out his YouTube channel the second you finish this episode. That channel is Small Scale Solo Wargaming. It's run by Matt Clifford. Matt is going to be a guest on the show, hopefully towards the end of February, maybe March. Uh, he has seven years war bat reps and now a first world war bat rep on there, actually. Uh, and it's all rather brilliant. Uh, I suggest you go and check him out immediately. Give him a subscribe and share the news about that wonderful YouTube channel and see what he has to offer. Okay, phew, that was longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, you're not here, clearly, to listen to me waffle on. You're here for the interview. So, let's talk about six. Yeah, sounds good to me. Good, good. Uh, right, okay, welcome to episode 41 of God's Own Scale podcast, and it's an international podcast today. Uh, and albeit one of my guests is in the UK, he doesn't originate from the UK, so we're spanning the globe. Uh, I've got Mr. Robert Dunlop with me. Hello, Robert. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Lovely good. to chat again, Sean. Nice to yes. be here. Yeah, yeah. I've called you Mr. The there. It's, it, I've called you Mr. There. It's Doctor, isn't it? It's, a, it's only when I send you the bill that we can, oh, yeah. we can get formal. <laughs> we'll send that to Sean. He'll sort it out. <laughs> Uh, so that's Mr. Robert Dunlop, originates from New Zealand. That's right, absolutely, but yeah. Been in the UK for some time, I think. Well, yeah, uh, best part of 25 years now. That, that's some time, yeah, <laughs> in anyone's book. Uh, so welcome, Robert. And over the other side of the world, in Canada, uh, Victoria, I think, uh, we have Mr. Sean Taylor. Hi, Sean, how are you? Hi, Sean, I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. Not at all. You've been uh, on the hit list for some time, and I'm just glad we've finally all got together in the same virtual room to have a chat about Great War Spearhead, which uh, sounds as though there's exciting things to come. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also maybe uh, a little bit at the end about a Kickstarter that's on its way. Uh, we can perhaps uh, plug that a little bit for you. As is usual with any new guest onto the show, though, Sean, uh, we do like to get into the weeds about who you are and how you came to be involved in this crazy hobby of ours. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the, the best way to start is to say that I, I come from a martial family. So my mum and dad both served during the war. All my brothers, there was four of them at one point, there's three left. They all served. My oldest sister was going to join the military, but she got pregnant and couldn't and never went back to it. So uh, I was in the Navy for 37 years, well, the military for 39, 37 in the, in the Navy and uh, two in the infantry. And uh, I got my sort of interest in miniatures to start when I was about three years old with uh, the old plastic cowboys and Indians that you used to get in the big bag with 100 of them. And uh, I started wargaming first with tabletop. Uh, Battle of the Bulge was the first game I ever got by Avalon Hill. And from that, I branched off into using uh, uh, Grant uh, Grant's rules 
with uh, Airfix uh, miniatures. And so that was when I was 13, so uh, 45 years ago now. And um, I didn't really take off into the miniature world again until I was in the Navy. And uh, my first army was uh, was a Citadel miniatures, uh, Byzantines, and I still love the Byzantine Empire. I mean, it's, it's probably my favorite army of all time. Um, and uh, I I've always been a, a sort of fiddling with miniature rules writing since I was about 12 uh, when I started writing almost like an RPG, even though they didn't really exist then. Um, I, I was writing games for my friends. And uh, when I got into starting to play Spearhead, uh, Artie Conliffe's World War II rule, Spearhead, uh, we, were, we were a playtest group for him uh, over in White Rock, BC, and a guy, uh, the guy who sort of led our group was a uh, Christopher Leach, and he he writes rules himself, and he's done a lot of work with Artie. And he told Artie that I was really interested in World War One, so Artie got a hold of me and asked me if I would write a supplement to Great Wars or to Spearhead, and I said I would love to because I've always had a, a huge draw towards uh, World War One, based on the history of my grandfather on my mum's side. Uh, he served with the 10th uh, Battalion uh, Canadian Expeditionary Force, which today, if you wanted to look for it, you would look for the Calgary Highlanders. And uh, he was awarded uh, the second highest um, Medal of Valor in the Empire for his actions in 1918. So that always tweaked me on about uh, World War One, And that's sort of my driving force behind that love of the hobby. And uh, so I wrote Great War Spearhead for uh, for Artie, and we did it as a supplement because he he said it was a fringe rule set that probably wouldn't last, like it wouldn't have a big draw. But he said it was really interesting and he wanted to include it. Like he was very supportive, great guy to work with, by the way. Um, uh, very very knowledgeable about how to put a, a rule set together. That's for sure. And uh, so we went with that. And it, it it actually did fairly well uh, from a marketing perspective. The biggest complaint that we had was it wasn't standalone. So uh, about eight years after I had released Great War Spearhead, six or eight years, um, we did Great War Spearhead 2. And that was Robert and I got together and uh, we, we said uh, we, we convinced Artie to allow us to um, – uh, put together a standalone package, which he did, and uh, man, it's just uh, it's unreal. Like uh, originally, I was told, yeah, you'd be lucky to sell 300 uh, to 500 copies uh, total because it's it's a fringe rule set. You know, people just aren't that interested in World War One. And uh, I've sold over, well, we've sold over 2,400 uh, copies of Great War Spearhead Two since it came out. And, uh, you know, through the, through the success of Great War Spearhead, I've added on some of my own rules that I, you know, without uh, jumping on Artie's coattail. So I've got Inept 2, which is uh, international uh, paranormal tactical teams. And it's uh, sort of a sci-fi um, neo uh, or near future game where you're taking on aliens. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, and it, it does fairly well. And I've done uh, probably my other best one is uh soe so um uh, special operations executive which is a 
it's, it's almost like a skirmish game where you're you're dealing with um, uh, the actions of the SOE agents that would have been in occupied Europe uh, or occupied world because you can do it anywhere in the world. So that's that's kind of where I am, and I've got uh, I would say somewhere to the tune of about uh, thirty thousand miniatures in my garage. Uh, that ranges anywhere like you know I've got a lot of six mil stuff because I'm really I'm starting to go more and more over to six mil yeah because I, I really like the scale and I really like the the scope that it gives you but I still have 28s and I have a few 15s I sold off all my World War One 15s and I have s- exclusively six mil for Great War Spearhead but I am writing a set of rules which I'm going to pass to uh, Robert at some point when I'm ready to that are for, um, I call it Platoon Commander's War, 1914 to 1918. So it's a different scale, but I want to use 6 mil for it as well. Right now I'm using 28s just because I had the 28s. But uh, yeah, so that's where I am. Excellent. 30,000 little men in your carriage. That's uh, that's some collection. Yeah, it's a bit its a bit uh, much probably, but uh, I, I'm, I admit it, I'm a megalomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know many war gamers that aren't, in fairness. Um, yeah. Mo- most of us have got our own body weight and lead, haven't we, somewhere? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe, Robert, you can come in and, and just say how, how you got involved then, uh, because I think it's 10 years, isn't it? Did you say that uh, Great War Spearhead 2 has been out and that that was a, a collaboration so how did you get involved Robert? Well I had been looking at uh, six mil and specifically around World War Two. though in the back of my mind as I think I mentioned in our last um, conversation was my grandfather's experience in the First World War. So I came across Artie Conliffe's spearhead and when i read it and and looked at it i thought wow yeah that that style of command and control could work really well and i discovered that sean had just released the original great war spearhead so i got in touch joined the yahoo group and the rest is history um the original great war spearhead was a supplement as Sean said. So you had to have both sets. And the problem was that there were bits of World War II that were not relevant, so you had to read past those. And you then had to try and connect the bits that were relevant. And it was just a bit cumbersome. So Sean and I got together, welded the whole thing into one, made a few changes, not many, and then released it as Great Great War Spearhead 2. It, it seems like an incredible piece of work, to be honest, because um, not only the the small changes that you made to the rule sets, but the, the army lists and the detail that you go into uh, with the various nations involved. How, how did you between the two of you how did you sort of share that work out or did one of you choose to look at the the formations and one of you look at the rules how, how did you divide that work up well most of the uh, the work on the orders of battle and the the um uh, weapons uh, charts that that was done by me uh at the beginning of great war spearhead and uh but the real the real um 
the real nuggets to take away from that is the amount of detail that has come out through research by Robert, by new books coming out, all that kind of stuff, um, has really fine-tuned the original Spearhead into Great War Spearhead 2. And we're, we're finding that there's more going on. Like, uh, if you look at, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Sean, but if you've seen the Gallipoli book that Robert just finished, uh, like, we just, just released it this year, and uh, Robert did, like, 99% of the work on that book. All I did was review it. And uh, it is just, it has taken the naval gunfire support system that we built for Great War Spearhead 2 and has magnified it um, tenfold without adding any complication to the entire process. So right. that's the real nuggets that we've, we've been able to uh, come up with, with Great War Spearhead 2. And one of the reasons why we're producing, or we're moving forward with Great War Spearhead 3. Yeah, the, the, I've um, I've been collecting all the supplements in the sort of chronological order they were released, so uh, that's the that's the only one I'm missing yet. But it is next on the purchase list because I'm sure you're going to tell me it won't be invalidated once uh, <laughs> uh, third edition comes a, a, along. Um, and I, I know Robert, we we spoke about your passion for uh, Gallipoli, and I've been keeping up to date with uh, certainly when you were developing your games that you were hoping to take to of six and hopefully that may come off this year now but uh it, it, how, how, have you how have you found that process writing that uh supplement spe specifically for gallipoli um when you've got that so much passion for the project already well like i said robert really was the one who drove gallipoli completely <clears throat> and uh all i did was was review it um from the sense that we're we're keeping uh, the same sort of um, processes in our books, and I want to reassure everybody that when we do Great War Spearhead Three, there is nothing in any of our supplements that will be invalidated. Some Phew. of the things, yeah, some <laughs> of the things may be upgraded a little bit. Like if you look at um, some of the weapon systems, might might change ever so slightly but it's not going to invalidate anything we are like nothing is really changing we are just upgrading some of the things like the naval gunfire support yeah. uh, we're putting villages into the book we're, we're taking all the little bits that we missed in the editing process of great war spearhead 2 and we're correcting those so really it's a it's like um, uh, bumping up the things that were picked up through research etc cetera, etc cetera, and and fixing what would be 11 years of errata. Yeah, so it's 11 years of playtest, I guess, that you've got to fall back on, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, Robert, uh, about about the uh, Gallipoli supplement then, um, how, how did you find that process of writing that supplement when you've got such a passion for the project? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, I think that the thing that really stood out was being able to build this complex terrain with the mountainous areas, particularly that the New Zealanders and the Australians fought over, and then to play out the battles and to start getting source information from Ottoman records, which started to fill in gaps in the historical accounts. Yeah. And the playtesting often exposed those gaps 
And the one I particularly remember is, of course, many New Zealanders know about the famous assault by the Wellington Regiment on Chanuk Bear and how after a day of failure to capture this high ground, the New Zealanders made it onto this relatively high point, not the highest, but certainly quite significant. And there fought it out for a day and it's kind of gone down in history, in our history as a country. But the, the question was, why could they have done that when the forces that the Ottomans had, had brought in to reinforce the area were five, six-fold greater than they had been on the first day? Yeah. And it was unlocking the, the reasoning behind that that was just fascinating. And finding that in the Ottoman, the original Ottoman accounts, the regiment that had been holding that area came under this massive naval and land-based howitzer bombardment. And that explained why they were virtually non-existent when the New Zealanders went in. Yeah. So lots of, lots of instances like that. And it was just fascinating from beginning to end. And well, that sort of answers a question that I was going to ask uh, either of you that um, has both developing this system, this Great War uh, spearhead system and playing the game taught you anything about the history and clearly that's resonated with you, Robert, there. Oh, I, I, it's transformed my understanding of the First World War um, without question. Um, when, when you start to set up a battlefield, and I try to do it, as you know, try to do it as accurately as possible, and you get the, the, the orders of battle as accurate as you can, you can start to see immediately why certain things played out the way they did. And if it isn't clear, then, you know, just that push to research further, especially in the German and the French records, um, it's, it's well, a good example, the original um, Great War Spearhead had the Mad Minute bonus. Yeah. And... When I read about the German, and in fact, I translated the German official history of the Battle of Mons into English, it was very clear that the British accounts were not accurate. The Germans hadn't gone down in great numbers other than to fall to the ground as they'd been taught to and under fire. So their casualties were actually quite light. And so at that point, the group of us involved in in Great War Spearhead decided we would drop that special rule. So, Sean, then, 11 years of playtesting, effectively, um, mm -hmm. where the uh, Great War Spearhead 2 has been out in the community. Um, you've sold a bucket load of, uh, of books. Uh, but now, uh, I think it was the back end of last year, wasn't it, where you put out the announcement that you were going to start working on the third version of this. So... Tell us uh, how, how that came about, how those discussions started between yourself and uh, Robert and Robin, of course, Robin Sutton. Right. Um, so there, there was, there's always been in the back of my mind for the last, I would say, five years that there was enough changes um, 
that were sort of sitting in the background. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that Robert did when he when we first uh, got the, the the rules had been published, we had I think we had released the first supplement. Correct me if I'm wrong, Robert. Um, when we started talking about villages and you came up with the whole idea that we should have a separate um, a separate rule for villages over uh, Artie's um, standard uh, urban layout. Um, and, you know, that kind of thing was sort of in the back of my mind. So um, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, I said to Robert, you know, should we should we do a, a third edition? And we sort of hummed and hawed about it, and uh, we weren't too sure. Um, we were still, we were, we were actually working towards, if I remember correctly, uh, yeah. So it would have been four years ago now. Holy smokes! Uh, we were working towards the Vimy game that we put on at the Canadian War Museum for the 100th commemorative uh, battle, uh, or 100th commemorative uh, anniversary of of Vimy Ridge at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. So. Um, we sort of put it on the back burner and we thought, yeah, you know, it's something we should look at in the future, but, you know, we weren't really ready. And then in the last little while, there's been a, a, a number of really uh, intelligent questions being uh, asked about, um, you know, why is this this way and why is this that way? And, and it's, it's not that people are saying the rule is wrong or the, the um, mechanic doesn't work. They're wondering how we got to the decision to make that that call and there's some things that are just not well explained in the rules as well right like people have a real tough time understanding brigaded artillery which i'm, I'm i must say for me i don't understand why it's it's confusing but then again i wrote the rule so <laughs> yes um, that helps <laughs> yeah exactly but you know it's, it's one of those things where if you understand military jargon Brigaded just means you're placing it all together. You can brigade armor, you can brigade infantry, you can brigade support units, you can brigade armor, artillery, and support units with infantry. It's a term that means you're massing them together, right? That's what brigading means. So when I when we called it brigading the artillery, um, or brigaded guns, it just means you're taking your individual batteries from a regiment or a battalion and you're placing them wheel to wheel and using them in the indirect fire mode when they're on table. So, you know, it's not well explained in the rules, obviously, because we get questions by every new player about that precise situation. So that's that's the kind of thing we need to clean up, not, not change the rule, because the rule works. Yeah. Um, but it's got to be cleaned up, right? And, and some of that is just a matter of uh, how it was written by me, um, with another guy who understood exactly what I was saying based on the fact that he was the guy looking over my shoulder as I wrote the rules. So when we, when we wrote it, it made complete sense to us and that's the way it was produced. Right. Yeah. And if you know enough about military history and military jargon, it suddenly becomes a non-issue because you get what the whole thing means anyway. So, you know, that's that's kind of where we uh, we what started to really become uh, almost almost a burr under my saddle because um, I was getting the same questions all the time. And it's you know, I'm not mad at the people asking the questions. I'm mad at myself for not having it clearer in the first place. And OK, maybe it's time we make a change. I know that. um 
you used to have the Yahoo group, didn't you? It's now the IO group. Yeah. Um, that uh, rules questions can, be, and, and in fact, the Facebook group as well, uh, yep. where questions can be answered. And I know, Robert, you're you're frequently on there, aren't you? Uh, fending off questions and, and answering questions uh, as they, they come up. Oh, love it. It's been one of the great drivers for the research, particularly. Um, I've always felt that if there was to be a rule change, it, it needed to be supported by good evidence where possible. And I think that's been a foundation from the beginning and it stood us in good stead. But it makes for superb, um, really enjoyable discussions backwards and forwards. And no question is ever too tedious or, or too trivial. It, it's great. It's one of the great things about the group. Yeah, it, it's it's such a friendly group, isn't it? And even when you get um, uh, a topic that comes up that runs on for 70 responses or messages, <laughs> uh, I forget what the last one was, but um, <coughs> it Mr. Burgess, I think, who, uh, who there was a lot of discussion around. Destruction of wire. There you go. Destruction of wire. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've, I've not yeah. done uh, my homework there, but thank you, Sean. Yes, destruction of wire. But that that was great because I I, I know for certain other hobby groups that uh, that would have turned into uh, a slanging <laughs> match and people people would be getting very upset. Third whereas... battle of the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but this actually the whole course of that conversation was the very reasoned and balanced arguments either way, weren't they? And I think that's one of the beauties of that, that group. It is. And, and I think that, you know, when you combine that with the insights that we've picked up from the different supplements that we've written, then, you know, there's just this ongoing desire to understand the war as yeah. thoroughly as possible. And and that's to honour, in my case at least, to honour those in the family that, that fought in the war. And to me, it doesn't make sense that we should fight it all over again yeah. with each other. Yeah. Um, but rather to use those same questions which, you know, I posed of Sean all those years ago. Why yes. does it do this? Why do the rules work that way? It's 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 brilliant. It's wonderful. It, certainly for somebody like myself who's who's come into this fairly late, sort of last couple of years. Um, what strikes me about the version that we've got at the moment is that at the heart of it, the basic on on table play and the mechanics of moving and shooting are really simple. Mm. Um, which is great because you don't need to be bogged down with you, you don't want the rules to get in the way of a good game do you or rules get in the way of the history and all the extra chrome that you've got in there which is either the uh as sean you alluded to about the brigading of artillery or the the pre-game bombardments for the trench game um or the probably one of the most crucial rules which is the command and control uh, structure that you've got in there they add in all of that flavor that I think once you mix it all together in a pot you just come out with a, a set of rules like no other to represent a game 
or sorry, represent a period that for many years people thought you couldn't play a war game of. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's funny because Robert and I have talked, I don't know how many times over the years, <clears throat> about how the the system of Great War Spearhead makes you, you know, it gives you an insight of what it would have been like as a commander of a corps or a division. And that's what we're trying to achieve. And uh, I think some people, when they when they look at, like, you know, I, we got a, a Great War Spearhead 2 got a, a, a pretty pissy review from uh, one of the magazines. And it was, it was pissy in the sense that they just gave it a bypass. They said, oh, yeah, it doesn't have machine guns, so therefore it doesn't really exist. Um, it was it was a it was like a pan right and, I, and you yeah. could tell that they never even read the rules yeah um, but they were making comments about it which is you know I get I get it I mean there's there's some rules out there that I've never played but I never will because they just don't appeal to me yeah but uh, the thing that that I really like about the rules is I get nervous every time I play that game and I play <laughs> that game for. Yeah. Like I do, I get, I get all, my stomach gets knotted because have I, have I deployed my guys right? Have I got the artillery plan right? Have I got, you know, it, and no other game does that to me. Mm. And I like that. It's, it's a good nervous feeling, right? Like, oh my God. Cause you know, you get a sense that you're, you're sending 20,000 guys over the top. You better have this right. And, and that for me, that this is the essence of the game, this, that command and control structure, because once you've launched your, once you've developed your plan and then launched your men into that, into that, those attacks or or, or following those uh, command lines, um, it can be pretty difficult to get them to change. <laughs> uh, yes, you know when when it all starts. Egg on face, did I hear you say, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who knows me knows. We've all that. been there. <laughs> I can tell you. But, but is, isn't that the essence of it, though? Isn't that the, the beauty that, as you said there, uh, Robert, that um, it, th this isn't one of those games where you've got ultimate control over every single aspect of the, the tabletop experience? And a lot of gamers find that really difficult, which is yeah. fine. You yeah. Know, yeah. It's it's really important to understand that it's horses for courses. Yeah. I am not somebody who is so interested in things like skirmish games, for example, but that's just a very personal thing. I really wanted to understand how was it that when people talk about lions led by donkeys, my grandfather would, he said to me, the big problem wasn't the generals we had. It was that we were fighting a really tough, determined enemy. And, you know, all the planning in the world um, comes comes unstuck yeah. when when you go over the top. Well, that's just how it is. And I really, really enjoy that. I enjoy that, that nervousness and that sense of, have I got this right? What's going to happen? It, it's, and, and, <laughs> 
you know, and that flank attack suddenly comes in. And you thought, yeah. Oh, I should have. <laughs> Why did we? Did they do about that reserve? Oh, yeah. <laughs> come on, come on, order change, order change. Yeah. <laughs> if I just yeah. had one more division. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, th- this is the the beauty of it, I think, and that's uh, and it's a rule set that is I am very passionate about. Uh, since discovering it really since we first spoke sean uh sorry robert um and uh it's it's one that I, i'm set, giving the very hard sell uh to my club and we, we've several get well the pandemic prevented uh much progress on that but uh i've, I've got s- numerous friends at my local club who are itching to play uh these games that i've been painting all of these figures for um and they're all passionate about the period uh, which is um, the first step, isn't it? You've got, you, I think you've got to have a passion for the period. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, because, uh, although, as you were saying, Sean, uh, uh, converting a 40k gamer to Great War Spearhead is some achievement. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> uh, well, it's incredible for me uh, to go from. A game, and this isn't to knock 40k as a, as a game or games workshop, but it's a huge step, isn't it? From it is, it's a leap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, really, really good to hear. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you you both came up with the idea that it was probably about time now to consolidate all of the learning that you've had over the last 11 years that's come from playtesting from the various social media groups and from ex- experience. So wh- where do you go from here then? What's, what's the what's the plan? What's the process looking like? Well, in essence, the 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 process we're we're going to we're going to not jump too fast. We're going to go on a slow steady uh rate of change. Um like updating things that are are incorrect um, from a from a perspective of spelling mistakes, grammar, all that kind of stuff, and then we're gonna add in as well the things like villages, um, anything like that. We're gonna update the things that would relate to some of the changes that we've made as we've done supplements, uh, which which actually includes uh, the amount of uh, offboard artillery that will be in, uh, allowed for. Um, certain theaters of war <clears throat> and um, naval gunfire support, things like that. But it'll be a slow, uh, steady progression because we're still working on supplement books. Uh, Robert's working on the on the um, uh, uh, Red Poppy's Dance, and I'm working on Days of May. And Robin's helping Robert playtest some of that, and I've got my playtest group here at home working with on days of May with me. So that won't stop. We will continue to pr- produce the, the supplement books as well. So it's not going to be, uh, you're not going to see Great War Spearhead 3 this summer, for example. Yeah. It, it, it'll, you know, we'll get to it as we get to it. Um, but it's something that, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll start to put a little bit more horsepower to once I get um, my Kickstarter done and days of May is complete. <clears throat> Okay, so um, are we at five supplements at the moment? Was it six? Six. There, there, but six. Yeah. Yes, with uh, our sons as well, I think, is is the Glippley one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've just mentioned 
to new supplements there. So, Robert, uh, why don't you tell me about the one that you're working on? So Red Poppy's Dance is the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to find out how the Somme came to be configured the way it was on that 1st of July. So I went back and I've pulled together some scenarios based on the original fighting between the Germans and the French in 1914. And that's really interesting because there you've got cavalry versus cavalry, cavalry versus infantry, and so on, as they kind of jockeyed in the race to the sea, moving you know further and further up that area of Picardy. And then I was in touch with Jack Sheldon, who's obviously well known as one of the key authorities on on the German um, side of the war. And he shared with me the the Battle of Serre, which is 1915. And it was part of the Battle of the Somme in 1916 as well. What was interesting is that the French attack in 1915 had got the Germans very focused on trying to defend that area. So in 1916, when the big attack went in, a lot of the German reinforcements had been dragged away from the French sector south of the Somme up into that northern area. And that's part of the reason why the southern attack succeeded. So it just made sense to bring some of these scenarios into and alongside the 1916 ones. And to cap it off, I had to do the battle that my grandfather was involved in, which was the Second Battle of the Somme, which is when the, the Germans had broken through, of course, in Operation Michael yeah. in March of 1918. And they'd reached basically open ground opposite the same area, roughly Sierre, and the New Zealanders came, came in and with the support of Whippet tanks, closed the gap. So yeah, there'll be a 1918 scenario in there as well. So so you're really covering all four years of the war there that took place pretty in much. that region. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> pretty, wow. much. pretty much. And, and, and the thing, one of the things that's um, also influencing our thinking behind Great War Spearhead 3 is that our sons as well took on a lot more kind of background material, almost trying to provide a, a level of um, historical background, along with a lot more explanation for things, um, the maps, for example, and the 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 way that the um, forces are set up on the table. There are pages and pages devoted to, you know, which forces were here and which forces were there and so forth. So it's a lot easier to set things up. And with Great War Spearhead 3, we wanted to do the same thing, was to give a lot more of that background. And that's really been part of Red Poppy Stance too, how the Somme came to be fought as it was and why it had the, the sort of outcomes that it did. And part of that was in the past and part of it was then carried through into 1918 as well. So we want to bring that out 
um, not just a group of scenarios, but a, a bit of a history lesson, I guess, as well. Yeah, um, that sounds fantastic. How many scenarios are you looking at in that book? Uh, it's probably going to be about 25, 30. Wow. <laughs> That's um, a lot more than I thought you were going to say. Yeah, no, oh. well, there's already about, there's already 10 from 1914 and 15. Right. So any any gamer that says he's struggling for a scenario, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to challenge them. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, that would uh, be something to play through all of those scenarios. Uh, so how far down the road are you? Got, you say 10, 10 or 15 already, but uh, when do you expect to get that out to the public? Uh, like to try and get that out in the summer. Okay. Um, it's obviously been hectic with the changes that COVID has imposed on work. Yes. But the other thing which was interesting is going back to 1914 in particular and 15 was the need to revisit the literature again and go back and look at the, especially the German accounts. I don't need to do so much of that for 16 because I've already done that work previously. Yeah. So the next 20 odd scenarios will, some of them are already built um, and they're not going to take as long. There's, there must be, um, you, you must be playtesting almost constantly, Robert, with that, that volume of uh, work. Yes, yes, I love it. It's the tables upstairs at the moment set up for the um, third battle of the Somme and uh, I've identified my grandfather's machine gun unit. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> I 3D printed the uh, Whippet tanks. Okay. Um, nice. and, and, but interestingly, as I read the German accounts, because I've managed to find all but one of the regimental histories of the Germans that were involved, um, they talk about features on the battlefield, which you don't really notice when you look at the maps. And then you go back to the maps, the hedges in particular, you don't think of hedgerows no. in that part of the Somme, but they were there. And you look right. at the original maps and you think, yeah, well, there's the lines. Wow. So, you know, going back and just adapting the the, the, the um, layout and it explains why, again, you see, it just explains why certain things happened the way they did. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, those, those kinds of insights from the playtesting get fed through into what should be a you know high quality um, supplement. Yeah, this never ceases to amaze, amaze me actually. That the level of detail here, where you're talking about developing a, a, a scenario to play a tabletop battle, but it informs your understanding of the history. I think that's just wonderful. It's you know. Kind of looking looking at this scenario of 1918, and there's this gap. There was nothing there. There was there are no British units in front of this particular sector, but the sector covers the width of a six foot table. Right. And then you realise, well, how big does a gap have to be if you're really going to break through? That's <laughs> one of the insights you get from something yeah. like this, yeah, because yeah. actually you've got Australians <clears throat> holding the very north, and you've got a a British brigade holding the very southern shoulder of the table and the Germans have to get through the middle. Right. And it's very difficult, actually, which is really interesting. And then the yeah. other thing was the German accounts talked about 
the left hand um, division was lagging behind. And I thought, oh, why was that? And so you dig around a bit further and suddenly you realize that the British south of the Somme were controlling the crossings over the Ancre River. And so they couldn't get across and therefore support the breakout. Right. It's just things like that. It's yeah. Just, it's absolutely fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Um, Sean, then, uh, what's what's the sell on, on your <coughs> supplement? Well, um, so Days of May, of course, is um, uh, the Italian Great War, for lack of a better term. Mm. And uh, I started out with uh, the Italo-Turkish War uh, because I thought it was an important lead-in uh, so that uh, you could sort of get a feel of what the Italians are all about. And, and, and they uh, had naval gunfire support. Come on. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you yeah. There was a naval element. <laughs> you, you can't take the sailor out of the gamer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, and, and uh, it's, it's fascinating to read. Like, you know, Robert's absolutely right. So, you, you know, you look at something like when the, when the Italians were uh, trying to drive the Turks um, away from um, uh, Tripoli. And uh, they sent an expedition down to attack a fortified Ottoman uh, area that had three fortified camps. And it was about the only uh, amount of artillery that the Ottoman had in, in Tripolitania. And uh, you start reading about naval gunfire support hitting the, the, uh, the Turkish positions. And I'm thinking, what? How did they manage that? But when you start looking at how the the weapon systems were used and the the, um, the lookout point on a mast on a battleship gives you great vision across a desert. And that's how they could spot these guys and, and drop before the Italians even got there. They were dropping rounds on the forts. And then, of course, they they also had the the one, uh, you know, everybody thinks that the uh, the one aircraft that was flying over was uh, an aerial observer, but he wasn't. He was dropping bombs, and he had no way to communicate with the battleships anyway. So it really brings a fascinating aspect in and makes you, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it going, holy smokes, they were, you know, 5,000, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, 5,000 meters away or more in some cases, uh, and yet they were sighting from the battleship and and hitting the, uh, the Turkish positions. Um, yeah, so um, anyway, moving on. Uh, There'll be three or four scenarios. I'm still working on one for the Italian war or the Italo-Turkish war. Uh, and then I'm going to go into uh, the opening of what would be considered uh, the forerunner of the um, uh, first Isonzo. And that is, uh, they, they call it the Hill of Death. And it's where um, Italian uh, Alpini attacked uh, King's Jaegers. Uh, on this salient position and it's just brutal and uh, some of the some of the action like the the first four turns of this scenario is going to be about the italians trying to just get across the river and if they get across the river then uh everything stops and then they set up uh you, you get to set up the italians um basically two inches away from the austrian position and the austrians can't use the artillery uh, anymore because they're too close and the Italians launch a night attack. So it's all very, uh, very close confines. And it's, uh, I, I've replayed it now four times and it is uh, a brutal contest and it's been two and two 
uh, two Italian wins and two uh, two Austrian wins, just holding the ground uh, on the top of that ridge. So it's it's a it's a really interesting mix, and it's not a very big scenario. You're only talking about um, uh, I think I think it's 30 stands aside. So it's it's okay. a very small scenario for Great War Spearhead, but it's a great way to introduce some of the uh, some of the aspects of um, of the rules themselves. And then uh, the next phase will be uh, the uh, uh, Trentino Offensive or the Asiago uh, Offensive, uh, whoever you want to uh, call that one out. And again, um, reading through the histories, both the Italian, which I'm having a heck of a time with, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to translate as much as I can uh, with Google Translate. And uh, I've asked Maurizio a few times to give me the real lowdown. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm using uh, Stan uh, Hanna's uh, Austrian um, translation as well to try and marry things up. And again, like Robert was saying about uh, how you could see why things worked and didn't work, man, the the, the Austrians made a decision to use uh, the, uh, the ridge lines uh, and attack everything that the the um, the Italians had, and it slowed them down enough that they couldn't break through. So you know you can see it happening, and uh, I've tried it uh, just uh, with my son to see what would happen if we didn't attack the ridge lines. Well. They swept through like uh, the Italians didn't have enough time to react um, once the once the barrage was over. So it's it's really interesting to see how and why things went the way they did. But it's it's also a fascinating um, place to fight over because you're talking about well, like Robert was mentioning with Gallipoli, you're talking about four or five terrain level uh, changes on a on a table that's six by four. So you you don't see that in the, in in most games. Well, any time you mention uh, a hill, Sean, I imagine Robert with his hex on tiles, <laughs> piling them high. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the anyway, it's the it anyway. Is. It is, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it sounds like things are well underway with Days of May then. Yeah, I, I'm probably uh, about 70%, 75% complete my end, but I've got to send all the map information over to Robert because he's, He's the map maker. Yeah. yeah. I, I've learned that, actually. You, you did a wonderful job on uh, a map for Luz for me. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, if you remember, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was really great, that was. Yeah, much appreciated. Oh, that was a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I, I just don't know how you, how you uh, find the time for these things, to be honest. It is uh, it is quite remarkable how uh, you, you turn these things around. But, uh, <coughs> and but how I, well, it it's, you know, you just... You just get into a pattern and with a template and boom. Yeah. It doesn't take that long at all. Right, yeah. And the other thing which I've concentrated on, obviously I've always enjoyed painting, but is is the photography side. And right. you know, it was a real challenge trying to to take photographs of six mil at all. Um but now some of what I sent through to the team at War Games Illustrated, for example, for them to have a look at and just comment on, you know, they were really impressed that you can get this extended depth of focus. You know, you can see them all in focus all the way back along the table. Yeah. And uh, it really makes six mil pop out. So I'm really pleased with the way that's come along too. Yeah, this has been... Um... It's been an argument or discussion that's been going on for some time, hasn't it, around 
how to photograph uh, six mil gains, and I'm a principally six mil gamer, um, to advertise the scale uh, for mass consumption in, in the glossy magazines. And we've seen far too little uh, of six mil represented in the, in the glossies over the years. So to hear you making such progress, uh, Robert, really warms the heart. I think you did see the Joy of Six uh, where my sons and I put on the Battle of Mats. Yes. And we had all those French tanks. And I shared some of those photos and particularly the ones at ground level with the key. Yeah. You know, looking along a trench line with these tanks moving up on one side and the defenders on the other and so on. Those, those are the sorts of things that are very difficult to do in six mil because of the problem of depth of focus. Yeah. But, but once you solve that, it starts to produce some really uh, quite striking um, images because yeah. of the numbers of, of soldiers that are involved, the mm. number of models that you can capture. And also, I think to a certain extent, um, you, you mentioned it, Sean, about the uh, Vimy Ridge game. Um, I've seen one or two pictures of that. Uh, you were at that as well, Robert, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent, it's about showing the whole as well, isn't it? Not just oh, the, yeah. not oh, just that yeah. sort of ground eye level, but yeah. uh, whether it was the Vimy Ridge model or the uh, the Marne game that you did, Robert, or the Somme game, um, it's it's showing this whole this whole landscape of, yeah. of war. That is very difficult to picture sometimes, I think, when you, you're reading accounts. But it's another thing that war games and recreating these battles on the tabletop bring to the historian to be able to visualise just where a village was and where a trench line was and how the attack might have looked as it was going in. And I, I think having that whole picture of, of the battlefield as well is, is another selling point for Six Mill because it clearly... The, the Vimy Ridge demonstration that you put on uh, would be impossible in any other scale, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. And we, do you remember, Sean, we had that um, uh, German um, military liaison officer who yeah. was from the Bundeswehr and he was based in Ottawa at the time and he came along and he was standing there and and just taking it all in on the one hand, so somebody from a military background, and then you get all these lay people who who had family that were involved, yeah. just in awe of of the scale of this, and and that definitely you can do in six and maybe ten, but hard to do beyond that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you would need such a such a huge scope of uh, of room that I, I don't know if it would be manageable uh, at anything beyond ten. Yeah, but I think the special thing, though, about those games that you guys have put on in the past and, and demonstrated is that it does, you can stand there at one end of the table and look down that recreated landscape and think, or you, you can appreciate more the challenges of the commanders yeah. Yeah. that they were facing. Yeah. When, um, Robert, when Robert and I were doing uh, Cambrai, at, uh, that was at Reading, wasn't it, Robert? Well, the original we did was in Bovington in the Tank Museum. But yes, we, we um, 
We yeah, I wasn't at the, Bovington though. No, no, no. It was it was it was um it was, the, it was Reading. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had these two guys who were playing a skirmish game, and I think it was uh, two fat lardies. Is it eight? I ain't been shot yet, mum, or is it through the mud and the blood? Anyway, they were playing that rule set about six tables down from us, and it was they were doing Cambrai. And they came down and said, oh, yeah, we're doing Cambrai down here. And it was very interesting. <laughs> so what part are you doing? And w- what it ended up was their their battle was about four, uh, not even four inches square on our table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I and see. they were both stunned. They're going, holy smokes. Yes. Yeah. yeah it kind of gave them perspective of, you know, what their battle was and what we were actually trying to show. And how many tanks did you have on that table, Robert? I think you did mention. Yeah, that. there were 90, 96, uh, <laughs> yeah. 96 tanks. Yeah. Heroic, heroics and Ross Mark IV. Yeah, wow. that's right. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, then. So uh, we've two new supplements to look forward to. We've uh, Great War Spearhead 3 uh, to look forward to. Is there going to be any sort of uh, public playtests of that? Or have you got quite a tight-knit group of playtesters lined up already for uh, spearhead three um as of right now the the, the playtesting is is probably not entirely necessary because i don't think anything actually changes with what we're putting together in the rule book okay. yeah yeah so yeah, i think that's right i think yeah. uh the the um one or two areas that are being added in have actually been out there in the supplements. Yeah. 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 So, so do you see this more of um, a collection then of everything that you you've learned over the last 10 to 11 years that's come out through the supplements, through the groups, it's just um, another iteration of the same game. Mainly it's clarity. And instead of having to go and find uh, a rule in a supplement book that we added in or, you know, the, the village piece that is, to me, very critical, which um, came out right after we released the rules, that that you have to sort of hunt around for to find, well, this way it's going to be in the rules and you can just you can just look at the rule book and you'll have it right there in front of you. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited about adding those vignettes and, <clears throat> you know, translations, for example, from, from German regimental records of the fire maneuver that was happening in in those very early 1914 battles or the the gunners saying right we've got to you know manhandle the guns forward those kinds of examples littered throughout i think really help to give it that historical grounding mm-hmm. so uh, similar to then robert to your some supplement would you will you be looking to sort of pan out the, yeah. the historical yeah. narrative more yeah yeah you have to do it in the right way of course because what you don't want to do is is have shed loads of of background information yeah. and then a rule and yeah. then <laughs> you yeah. know another 10 pages of background as interesting <laughs> yeah. as it might be and another rule yes <laughs> because yeah, yeah. finding finding it would be a nightmare but but yeah, we've got to figure some of that out, but but there's no question that it really helps to to give a sense of why it operates the way it does, 
And for anybody that's that's new to that gaming type of system, that is the spearhead style. I think it's really important to have examples of why the command and control works like it does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, you know as well as I do, Sean, that you know a lot of the people that are gaming a, a, an area, they don't necessarily have a, a depth of understanding that would be uh, anywhere close to what uh, Robert and I have. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, just the even a smattering of information like we did with um, uh, Summer Harvest or um, uh, uh, the Mesopotamia book uh, or the um, uh, all fine men, you know, just the, just the, um, the overall scope of what the, um, the campaign is about makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think, um, essentially as you've, you've stated this version three is going to be very familiar, uh, and without in, invalidating any of those supplements, uh, we'll just uh, well it may well uh, help you Robert from answering so many questions on the on the group <laughs> although I'm sure no war gamers uh, yeah. within one day of publication there'll That's be right. uh, another I, thread I don't uh, yeah it won't it won't change the questions and I, no. I really really enjoy them I have to say yeah, I yeah. mean I, I think you know as Sean said we now have a level of expertise and understanding yeah but I think I hope what what stands out when we are working on the group is that we never allow that to get in the way. Um, you know, it's always important to to think about every question again afresh. Absolutely. And that's the yeah. wire cutting. That's you know that was where that was so interesting because yeah, there have been discussions about that before. Mm-hmm. Haven't pursued it as deeply, but it was important to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I agree completely. I, I look at every question with a fresh set of eyes. So, you know, whether I've answered the same question 90 times or once, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do my research. And sometimes I go back to my old notes if I still have them and I'll say, well, this is why I did it originally. And this is why it changed uh, because we found more data as we did Great War Spearhead 2 and we changed it from that to this. Or, you know, go back and reread. And sometimes you find something new, like uh, like you were mentioning earlier, Robert, with the, the uh, Mad Minute. And uh, so we eliminated it. Yeah, that, that is important that you, you think of the First World War as being sort of done and dusted and, you know, the, the information's out there. But actually, there's more and more stuff coming to light all the time. And it it's... It's fascinating and exciting to see that happening. Um, I was reminded of it when I visited the Somme battlefield, and obviously one of the areas that features is that um, uh, area in the centre of the British line where there was a lot of mining had taken place. And I actually visited La Boiselle and the team that was doing all of the investigations of the old British mines and and it was just fascinating they found all of this material in the German archives in Bavaria which completely unknown before completely it's just fascinating 
Yeah, I don't know how widely they, how how long they've been available, but uh, being able to get the the view from the other side of the wire, so oh, to speak, yeah. Ralph, is it, just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Ralph Whitehead's books. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Ralph is wonderful. He's yeah. he's a tremendous guy, and uh, his his work, particularly in tracing the uh, the list of the wounded and killed. Yeah. And tying it all back, oh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Because he, he works in um, the um, insurance industry. So he was, right. you know, very much into that kind of actuarial analysis. Yes. And it's, what, a, what a wonderful uh, contribution he's made. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it is something that you can, you never stop learning from, is it? There's always something new out there or some new discovery or some new perspective that can uh, develop your own understanding of, of this conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. Right, gentlemen. Um, thanks very much for uh, giving us the lowdown on, on what's coming with Great War Spearhead. I'm very excited. I'm still holding you, uh, Robert, to, uh, you did mention about maybe a weekend game. Um, clearly, a uh, global pandemic has got in the way of that, but uh, uh, I hope you remember that. <laughs> I meant talking about that. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I was yeah. just actually on the website for the War Games Holidays um, uh, company, you know, that are based, uh, I think it's Basingstoke. Yes. And just thinking, you know, about hiring for a week and getting it set up. And I was looking at the Somme and looking at what um, Chateau could be, could be uh, <laughs> rented for a week and oh, we'll get a group yeah. of us over. <laughs> Nothing like wonderful. thinking big. No, no. Well, listen, <laughs> think big or go home, I think they say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what's on hobby tables at the moment? Sean, what have you got on your hobby table at the moment? Uh, what, from the perspective of painting or from? Yeah, yeah painting or playing. Um, well, I'm, I've been doing a lot of work on, uh, Moria por Linda Shin. Um, I'm working on days of May. Uh, just like I told you, uh, when Robert was offline there, I, I finished an Austrian division and another Italian division just before Christmas. Um, uh, what else? That's, that's sort of the, uh, the main, main stuff I'm doing right now. Um, but you've got a game set up for tomorrow night. I know about Yes, that. I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fleur, Fleur Corselet. Yeah. 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 That's oh. the the guy, the 40k player is taking on my son. So I'm I'm going to just uh, guide him through it because it's only his third game or something. <laughs> that's a baptism of fire. <laughs> oh yeah. And my son's the Canadian, so it's oh, going to okay. be ugly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll look forward to hearing reports about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert, what's what's on your hobby table at the moment? Well, the interesting thing has been working with Henry Turner, whom you interviewed um, a few podcasts back. Yeah. And he's produced these Napoleonic six mil STL files, as they're called, yes. which you can use for printing, 3D printing. And I've got a, um, a really nice 3D printer. And so I was printing up some of those and decided I'd paint a few of them and just really enjoyed it. But I, I, I think, you know, this whole 3D printing and so on, it's just fascinating. 
really, really enjoying learning new skills. Yeah. And I, I, I had two things really that stood out. One was I built a model of the fort and um, Cedel Bay, which is at the bottom of Cape Hells. And it was the fort that overlooked V Beach that was obviously such a struggle. Um, the SS River Clyde was the kind of landing troop ship that went in and grounded itself. And then the men couldn't get off because they came under such terrible small arms fire from, yeah. from the Ottomans. So I actually um, built a scratch built a model of the fort, then learned about what's called photogrammetry, which is where you take multiple pictures of this at different angles. And there's a piece of software that joins them all together and creates a 3D model of it. Wow. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the the second thing I did was to actually then make a, a model of the SS River Clyde. Right. Um, just, yeah, loving it. Loving it. Yeah, 3D printing is very interesting. And I, I think if I had a crystal ball to look into the next five to ten years of this hobby, I, I think... 3D printing is going to be front and centre um, at, at some point on, on the journey. Um, uh, yes. There's just so much versatility. Yeah. Uh, Especially with Henry, you know, Henry has really transformed that with his ability to create these files that you can adjust the head slightly one way yeah. and then the next person is looking down a bit and mm. you know every individual in your in your army can be different yeah or just change the headwear or the footwear yeah it's incredible incredible um i'm looking forward to that journey although uh, i'm a slight technophobe um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'll jump in at some point yeah down that road. well uh, the cost of entry has come right down Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I know that um, yeah. Aaron in, in the States has been trying to persuade me into 3D printing <laughs> for some time. So. With uh, religious zeal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a little extra. <laughs> on the top. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I am I am very tempted, very tempted. Uh, gentlemen, it's been very, uh, it's been a great pleasure to have you both on. Um, Robert, you know what's coming next, Sean. I think I've warned you about this, but there's two things required of any guest on the podcast. Um, and I need commitment from both of you uh, for for this. Uh, the first is very easy, um, is that you both agree to come back onto the show at some point in the future. Um, for sure. Yeah. I'd love to, yeah. Excellent. And actually, there's one more thing we'll talk about, but we'll do it after after this bit. But uh, and the second is uh, a book for the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. Now, Sean, you've given me a, a little bit of a, a sneak peek of this, and this is a a unique entry uh, into the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. Uh, do you want to tell us what it is? Well, it's it's my go-to. Um publication, if you will, um, done by Stan Hanna, and it's his uh, translation of the Austrian war records from World mm. War One, And it is a phenomenal mm. uh, resource, uh, both maps and the write-ups. And, and how freely available is that? Uh, it's completely free. Uh, it's um, If you type in Stan Hanna Austria uh, yep. on your search engine, it's usually the first one that comes up. Austria-Hungaria's last war is what it's called. 
And right. com, C-O-M-R-O-R-O-E, studios is where it resides. So Stan Hanna is S-T-A-N-H-A-N-N-A. And if you type in that with uh, Austria translation, it'll come up. And there's seven volumes of text and seven volumes of illustrations. Sheesh. And really, I mean, really high quality um, maps. Yeah, big time. Wonderful. Just he's done a fantastic job. As somebody who knows very little about uh, um, the Austrian Hungary uh, involvement in the war, that's going to be uh, something I'm going to take a look at. uh, It'll give you a completely different perspective because in the West, we don't understand the Austrians and we don't understand Italy. Right. From World War One, it it bugs me all the time how badly they get misaligned. And when you start looking at how the Austrians fought the war with crappy weapons and poor technology and the the heart and soul of their soldiers, even though it was a diverse empire that was was um, self-destructing. Man, I don't know how you could uh, poke holes in those guys and say they weren't good soldiers. Right. And you hear it all the time. I shall look forward to taking a look at that. So uh, thanks thanks for that entry, uh, Sean. That shall take pride of place on the God's Own Scale virtual library shelves. Uh, Robert, have you got something for us? I have a two-volume release by Jonathan Porter called Zero Hour Z Day, or mm. Z Day, as our American colleagues would call it. Yeah, It's a wonderful, wonderful series that is basically looking at each of the British corps in the Battle of the Somme, starting at the southern end. <coughs> and so far, he's covered the, the the two corps that were successful in that battle. And what he's yeah. done <coughs> has set a new standard, not just for the Somme, but for any books to do with the First World War, the detail across, you know, he, he looks at the intelligence, the <coughs> um, the um, artillery plans, the trench mortars, the training, everything, both British and German, and it's fabulously illustrated, beautiful, beautiful maps, lots of um, detailed descriptions of how actions were fought out even down at the squad level. And he was a a Marine and then was in the Special Boat Service. And he's brought all of that kind of background and experience to bear in thinking about the way the terrain was set out and the battle was fought, et cetera. Brilliant, brilliant books, wonderful books. That sounds like it's going to cost me some money, Robert. (laughs) There is a paperback version now, but... If you can go for the big ones, they're the, the, the kind of stuff you like to put on your coffee table. Oh, they really brilliant. are very high quality and beautiful books. Excellent. I look forward to taking a look at both of those because that sounds right up my – in fact, both both entries there, gentlemen, sound right up my alley. So thanks for those. Um, there's one thing I, I just wanted to finish with, Sean. Uh, I think you've alluded to it earlier in the – show about uh, a kickstarter that you've got starting i think it's the 15th isn't it yes it is yep let's just have a little chat about that before we finish sure uh, so we can get listeners excited about what's coming from uh, taylor wargaming uh, productions 
Yeah. So um, the Kickstarter is uh, for a rule set that I wrote called Morir pour l'Indochine, which is, uh, you know, die for Indochina. And it's uh, the French Indochina War. So most people uh, only know Diem Bien Phu. Uh, uh, that's the one that everybody um, gravitates to. That's the one, the only one that the French have any, or that anybody's ever given any uh, air to. And yet the war went on from 1946 to 1954. Right. And the French actually lost more guys in uh, um, Indochina <clears throat> than they did in World War II. Wow. And yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the uh, the forgotten entity of Western conflict. Yeah. Because, you know, it was overshadowed by the Second Vietnam War or the Vietnam War, as the Americans uh, would call it, or the Second you know, China War, as the Viet Minh sometimes refer to it. So it's uh, when I started this, I started this project. Oh, man, must have been about nine years ago. And uh, originally, my concept was to have three levels of play. It would be skirmish, tactical, and operational. So at the tact at the skirmish level, you'd be playing basically one to one or one to five somewhere in there. At the tactical level, you'd be playing with a base representing a squad um, of troops, and at the operational level, a, a base would be uh, a platoon. As I as I went through the process and started to read more and more and more about the um, the conflict, I realized that I had bitten off more than I could chew in one book. Okay. So what I did was I I went to um, um, the first book will be um, skirmish level, and so you've got uh, two levels of skirmish play though. One is an individual soldier is one miniature. And the next level, which I call Skirmish Plus, is one miniature is three soldiers or a fire team. And the fire team concept is what the basis of the rules work from. And it's all about leadership and command and control. So if you're not using your squad leader at the lowest level or your platoon leader at the at the higher level to control the aspects of the combat around whatever your situation is, you're, you're not going to fare well. And if you use the tactics that worked properly for either side, you're going to get good results. And if you don't, you're not. Um, so it, it's not uh, it's not your standard um, uh, cast off of uh, and I'm not I'm not disparaging anybody here, but you know how bolt action everybody's tagging on to bolt action and making bolt action World War One and bolt action Vietnam and bolt yeah. action this and, and quite frankly. This, I think that does disservice to trying to get the right feel. Because for me, wargaming is all about the feel. If you don't feel like you're fighting um, the action in the in whatever the theater or, or era you're fighting, I don't, I don't, I lose interest. Yeah. Right. And so I got I, when I started playing bolt action, I thought it was really cool. That here, here you go, you got bolt action, World War II, nice figs. But to me, it had very little replay value. Because it's always the same thing. And so I was like, yeah, you know what? There's something missing for me. So that's why I started back into the Morir pour l'Indochine, which I originally called Hell in a Very Small Place. But I thought uh, even though Bernard Fall is no longer with us, I shouldn't probably uh, plagiarize his name. <laughs> and um, and so I, I, I started developing more and more 
just about the French and Viet Minh experiences in the war. And they vary from the uh, Vietnam War, and they vary from Malaysia, and they vary from Borneo. Not, not in huge, um, unlinkable ways, but they are different. So I thought it was important to capture that on its own. So I, I managed to get two manufacturers of one of miniatures and one of buildings who both thought the, pro, uh, the project was really cool, and they've jumped in with me for the Kickstarter. And so if, you, uh, if you, you've got the option of buying the rules in PDF or print, and there will be options to buy and uh, or you know reward backing for miniatures either if you want a Viet Minh uh, squad or a French squad or both, and then you can also add in up to five buildings. So we got a whole bunch of different levels in there that'll be you know that'll all come clean in the wash. But uh, it's been a really fascinating uh, process, and the upper end of the um, uh, the Vietnam War, the operational level, it will come in book two. But right. I had to separate it because right now I'm already at 115 pages, and that's about uh, that's about as far as I want to go. Okay. So, I, so, so, so book so, two will cover the other other aspect. So the rules are are written. The rules are complete. I'm waiting for uh, two of my independent editors to get back to me with any changes that I need to make before I go to publication. Yeah. And then uh, we, we've got a couple of manufacturers on board. So launching on the 15th. Yes. Uh, running for how long? 40 days. 40 days. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and then the, 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 right now, the, uh, the manufacturers have agreed that they should be able to produce and deliver um, the buildings and the miniatures no later than September. Okay. So yeah. looking at autumn delivery uh, are these yeah. existing manufacturers then or uh, yes they are yeah yeah okay yeah great. so one is uh 3d design out of uh oregon yeah. uh, ron palma is the owner of the um uh, the company and if you've never looked at ron's stuff it's, it's mdf right so yeah. you're talking about laser cut buildings i don't know how people don't understand how good his stuff is because it, to me he's charging less than you would pay for Cerisa or um, Blacksite Studio or um, Foreground, and his stuff is uh, the the instructions first are are top quality. Like there's no there's no uh, problems following Ron's instructions. Which if you get Cerisa, Cerisa stuff, often you have to sort of by guess and by golly some of their some of their photos. Okay. And uh, Ron's is just phenomenal. He etches everything as well, so he's got detail on the stuff. So, you know, it's the same caliber or same quality of, of, of detailing and everything. But then he doesn't waste wood. He, he, he's, uh, he'll um, make up things like uh, storage containers or fencing, things like that. So that you, when you buy a village hut, for example, uh, one of the Southeast Asia huts, you actually get enough fencing to, um, if you buy three of them, you've got enough fencing to, for your village. Okay. And that's all built in, so you don't have to buy extra stuff yeah. like the other companies do to, uh, you know, you, you get all your scatter terrain or whatever you want to call it, right? Mm. And he has that already built into the whatever package you buy. Well, I'll, and then, I'll, I'll certainly put a link up to him, and, and then there's yeah. another company, yeah? Yeah, the miniature producer is a fellow in Belgium, and he goes by JJG, 
So Juliet, Juliet, Golf, uh, Print 3D. Uh, but are, they, are these physical sculpts or STL files? No, they're physical sculpts. Um, yeah. the, the guy who made the STLs is Raphael Longbow. Um, but JJG Print 3D does the printing for him right uh, now. Now, yeah. Raphael does a whole bunch of STL files, and uh, he sells the STL files in, in some cases, but uh, I, I think there's an exclusive for these um, particular files right now. And so uh, Print 3D is, or JJG Print 3D is the only one that's producing those um, um, Indochina figures at the moment. And he's got a he's got a raft of them. Like I've got 22 miniatures that'll be available in the Kickstarter if you bought both uh, French and and Viet Minh. But just have a look at the, uh, the the vehicles that he has and all the other odds and sods. Like he's got way more than 22 miniatures for one thing, and they're really nice sculpts. Like he's done a phenomenal job. Excellent. So I'll I'll put a link up to both companies uh, in the show notes, but. Um, certainly to the the Kickstarter, uh, which, uh, as we say, goes live on the 15th. So uh, I wish you all the best with that, uh, Sean. That sounds fascinating. It's, again, a a little bit of a a blind spot in my own history, but uh, I'll I'll certainly be going and having a look at it and uh, seeing uh, what comes comes of it and comes of that project. Um, uh, Robert, are you at the Joy of Six in July? I will be. I'm planning to belatedly put on the Battle of Surrey Bear and the landings at Souffle Bay. Oh, you bugger. Sean, you mentioned that uh, you were planning a trip over two years ago. Uh, are we going to see you this year or not? Not this year, no. No. But I'm going to try and get over there next year if things are a little clearer. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I hope you do. Uh, Robert, I'll no doubt see you at the Joy of Six if we don't speak before. Uh, and Sean, when you do get over, uh, I'll be glad to uh, share a beer with you and uh, and, and talk more uh, about this wonderful hobby of ours. So, uh, Robert, thanks very much for joining me. Sean. It's been a pleasure, can, Sean. Can I can I interject for one moment? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. There was a question that a guy posted. Out. Oh, there was <laughs> and i wanted to uh, i wanted to address that i don't like robert probably doesn't know what the question is because it was on facebook <laughs> yeah i forgot all about that i'm so glad you <laughs> uh can you remember what it was <laughs> um it was basically what are the uh what are the uh, problem areas that you see uh for the coverage of great oh. war spearhead as far as um world war one aspects go and the short answer for me is there there are no um there are no missing links. You can play any theater. You can play any. Well, if you go below Brigade, don't use Great War Spearhead. Um, it's that simple. It just doesn't work. Yeah. The bigger you go, the better the flavor the game actually gets. So if you can play a game where you're playing multiple core, especially if you have multiple players, it just takes off. Yeah. But the other thing is, is the I think what really bugs people about trench warfare in particular, and Robert, maybe you can jump in here after I'm done, but with trench warfare, everybody says, well, it's impossible. Well, okay, it's not impossible. And some some cases, like uh, if you look at Fleur Corselet, or Corselet, there's 
it's very difficult for the Germans to win in the sense of defeating the Canadians um, from a perspective of um, eliminating them. But if you manage your um, victory points uh, or how you're going to achieve victory, you can make it very interesting with uh, with just uh, a few slights of hand of, uh, okay, if I hold out for this many turns, I get a victory point. If I hold out for this many turns, I get a victory point. And if you've seen some of the um, some of the scenarios that we have in the books uh, already, um, that's already there. Um, you know, there's there's things like uh, if you cross uh, if you cross a, make a river crossing or you get across with a with a regiment, um, you get a victory point, and and that kind of stuff is is critical in my opinion to use in the trench warfare aspect of gaming, especially. Robert. I would agree entirely, and and the only other point to add is just how much more interesting it becomes as the war progresses, and you get more examples of combined armed actions yeah. with mass tanks and so forth. Yeah, I, th I think having those um, specific victory conditions for both sides um, really is the way to do it, isn't it? So. As you say, Sean, that uh, it'd be a very hard day for the Germans if it, if he, they had to basically smash the Canadians. But if you give them a, a different victory condition, which is basically to improve on the historical performance, then that's something for the German player to aim for, isn't it? Precisely. That's exactly yeah. it. And, yeah. I, you know, I think that part of this stems from competition gaming. And, you know, I have no yeah. problem with competition gaming. You know, that's that's a it's, it's not my f uh, favor, uh, favorite type of style. In fact, I don't play it anymore because I find it's it's too it's too uh, predictable. Yeah. But uh, but I think that what's happened is, is that people want everything to be equal and even. And if you've ever been in the military or if you've ever read <laughs> military history, you wouldn't fight if it was even, yeah. <laughs> right? You just yeah. wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. The Germans didn't line up with 2,000 points, did they? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't think yeah, so. No. Yeah. Um, Sean, I, I'm glad you reminded me about that, about this question, because there is actually a second question. Oh. Uh, so the first question was from Dylan Hughes. Thank you, Dylan, for that. Uh, and the second question was from Matt Breeze who says, I'm curious if there will be any future supplements focused on battles or campaigns where trench battles are the main focus rather than the early war. And I know, Robert, you've you've already alluded to this with uh, your SOM supplement, uh, which is going to go from the, the start of the war through to the end. But any any thoughts on that, gentlemen? Uh, there's, def there's definitely going to be <laughs> examples. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We've got... Um, Verdun. Two two types here. <laughs> Verdun. We've got um, Third Eep. Yep. And obviously the whole of the Battle of Arras is important. Yep. yep. And the other series, which is slightly different in the way it's going to work, is the two tank supplements. So there's already work advanced on the major battles that saw relatively large numbers of tanks used. And a surprising number of them. So, and those are those are all centered around uh, trench warfare as well. Days of May will see a number of the uh, Caporetto battle um, 
uh, Vittorio Veneto. Those will have some trench warfare, um, as well as a couple of the Asanzo battles. I'm going to do uh, at least two more supplements for the Austrians and Russians, uh, which will include some German pieces. Uh, that'll take us through 1915 and 1916. Um, 1917, we'll, Robert and I have talked about uh, catching the fringes like uh, Salonika, uh, Romania, things like that. So that's, that's a little farther down the line. It doesn't really cover the trench aspect per se, but Salonika definitely does, right? So, yeah, there, we are, in, in general terms, we are going to leave no st stone unturned. Because my opinion is uh, World War I is uh, badly maligned in, uh, in the gaming society in general. Not, not badly maligned, sorry. It's badly represented. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it deserves better. And uh, quite frankly, with a guy like Robert on your side doing all the research that he does and uh, <laughs> and the de the exacting detail that he brings to the table, um, you know, there's there's no better way to do business. Yeah. So um, yeah. I think yeah. we've got a, a, a really good combination with the rule set that we have and the the enthusiasm and dedication that both he and I and Robin uh, bring to the table. And uh, yeah, we're not going to stop. No stone unturned, no trench uncrossed. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned robbing there because I, I know there is a third party uh, in, in in these projects going forward. Um, and it w of course, it would have been lovely to get robbing on, but um, the, the scheduling of uh, a suitable time was beyond my meager brain to compute. So, uh, robbing, uh, I'll hopefully speak to you at some point uh, in the future uh, with one or other of uh, these fine gentlemen that are with me on the show but uh, maybe once uh, Great War Spearhead 3 is uh, well down the line towards uh, publication um okay this is this this is uh, like the lord of the rings it's got the longest ending <laughs> ever <laughs> so <laughs> i think this is the third ending now. <laughs> but well uh, i just wanted to <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many more questions. <laughs> roll the six. I roll the six. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say anything. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thanks very much for giving up your time. Um, I, I know it's been a long time coming, Robert, our second chat. And Sean, it's been great to finally speak to you. And I, I hope to catch up with you in the future. For sure. sure. Thanks very much, Sean. All well, the very best. Cheers. Thanks. And Bye you, now. Robert. hope you enjoyed that chat with robert and sean and thanks once again to them both for giving up their time to say i'm excited for what's coming for great war spearhead is an understatement and to a certain extent this is another rather selfish episode as i'm a huge fan of the rules but i know there is a large following out there for great war spearhead and if you've not tried them out this might encourage you to do so so i have been down with omicron and had a rough time of it since new year's day really 
However, in my more lucid moments, I have managed to smash out over 800 figures for my Guildford Courthouse game. Uh, so much so that I'm nearly done. I'm just awaiting a few flags and one or two more units from Bacchus, but I imagine come the mid to end of February, Guildford Courthouse will be ready to go. I've also taken possession of the last division for my Tikval game, so once the AWI is done for now, it'll be full steam ahead for that project. On top of that, and with a view to my oval list, which is essentially my hobby plan for the year, see uh, the Hobby Support Group podcast, highly recommended, go and check it out, I'll be turning to Blenheim. More of this in a later episode, but I'm now settled on how I'm going to do it. Uh, I already have a few figures uh, in this stash ready to go when the moment is right, so I'll keep you fully updated on Blenheim and how I progress with that project. Please check out the God's Own Scale Facebook group. There are over 100 members there now, and I'm making a real effort to post up there regularly to get some debate and discussion going. And on that note, Patreon. Back in August, I talked about a live paint and chat for supporters, which never materialised. However, fear not, it is happening this Friday. Sorry. It is happening this Saturday, 15th of January at 9pm GMT. Clearly, if you listen to this after the event, bearing in mind that today is the 13th of January, you will miss it. But fear not, it will go up onto the God's Own Scale YouTube channel around a week later. Uh, note, I said the God's Own Scale YouTube channel, not Billy Goat Wargaming. That channel will stay dedicated to my 15mm gaming, so look out for more content on the God's Own Scale channel down the line. Uh, as I speak, tomorrow night, Friday the 14th, uh, we are playing Shiloh using the Ultra Freedom rules at the Stoke Club. And it's going to be a little bit of a uh, nostalgia trip because um, a couple of older members have rejoined the club of recent one being jeff white a very good friend from the dim and distant past um who i may talk about uh, in the future at some point but uh, jeff uh, if you're listening it's great to have you back at the club and i'm really looking forward to this and many more games and in fact chats about history further on down the line uh, and the other one is stefan stefan pedder Great to have Stefan back and see him back at the gaming table. And I think Shiloh will be hopefully the first of many great games that we share together across a table down at the Stoke Club. As always, thank you for downloading and supporting the podcast. It really does encourage me to do better. I have been rather chaotic in my hobby and really schedule for the podcast over the last few months. But calmer waters are ahead. And 2022 is full of possibilities and potential and promises to be a great year. If you would like to help support the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale. You can catch me on Twitter at God's Own Scale or the Facebook group previously mentioned. Any feedback, comments, ideas or suggestions, let me know via email at godsownscale at gmail.com or through the Patreon page or, in fact, anywhere you can find me. Okay, I am now off for my Horlicks and a shot of the old stuff and the last mince pie of the year. Hope you enjoyed the show. Spread the word, subscribe and until next time, please stay safe, play nice 
and keep talking about sex. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left hand and fixed upon his shoulder, right and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know. I'll be sicker than death, you know. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Don't cry, don't cry, there's a silver lining in the sky, on far 